Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Hey, we're going to do something a little bit different today. I know you all just sat down and got comfy, but would you stand with me one more time for the reading of God's Word? This is going to be a long chunk, but hang with me. This is God's Word to you this morning. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. I'll read the words in white. You read out loud with me the words in yellow. Paul says this. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. 
Wow. Lot to unpack there, huh? Happy Mother's Day, y'all. Moms, we love you. (laughs) Question for you this morning. What is your longest running argument? What's your longest running argument? Now, we've already established today that this is a house of grace, and so there's no shame in here. We could even do a little show of hands if we want to. Anybody ever been in a week-long argument before? Week-long argument? Y'all are making me feel really bad. You judgmental people. All right. Uh, Month long, six months long, year. Anybody over a year? Okay, that might be petty. You need to do some work, okay? Um, But um, confession time. I did the math this week. Rebecca and I have only been married for seven years. But if memory serves correctly, we are actually in the middle of an eight-year unresolved argument, okay? Here is the situation. The year was 2015. Before we got married, Rebecca was living down in Stillwater, Oklahoma, back in the back woods. It was exciting as it sounds. And um, I went down there because this family in the church had called her and said, hey, um, we've got some old furniture that we're getting rid of. Do you want it? And she was poor. I was poor. So we said, uh, yeah. And so I go down there. We go to pick up this furniture. And we quickly discovered that uh, this family's definition of old was very different than our definition of old. Like this was nice, like matching recliner, matching reclining love seat, matching reclining couch, like the whole set. This was like awesome for poor college kids, right? And so like me being the good boyfriend that I was, like we load up this furniture. I carried that stuff up three flights of steps because she had a third floor apartment with no elevator. It was nuts, but I was trying to show off how tough and how good I was, right? And uh, we get it all set up in the living room of her apartment and we look at this And I'm thinking, wow, what a nice gray couch. And Rebecca's thinking, wow, what a nice green couch. (laughs) And we had this discussion and I was like, oh, whoa, I did not realize you were colorblind before this moment. Didn't know that was a thing. And eight years later, here we are. We still can't agree on the color of the furniture. I wish I could bring you all to my house this afternoon so you could help arbitrate this discussion for us. We have literally had third parties come into our home, neutral third parties to referee this. And we've still gotten no conclusions. Eight years, please, please, please pray for us. Can we do that? That's item number one today, okay? Uh, Now listen. That's a silly, stupid little example, right? That's, that's no big thing, but that's kind of how marriage goes, isn't it? That marriage, I mean, at its best, it is this amazing gift from God, and at its best, it brings us the deepest joy and the sweetest closeness that we can experience as human beings this side of eternity, but we're also human, aren't we? And every marriage is the union of two sinners. And so there's just always going to be times when you don't see quite eye to eye, right? One of you is going to put the toilet paper on with the roll coming over the top. And one of you is going to put the toilet paper on with the roll coming under the bottom. And one of you is going to squeeze the toothpaste from the middle of the tube. And one of you is going to squeeze the toothpaste from the end of the tube because your mama raised you right. Can I get an amen this morning? Happy Mother's Day to those of you who are raising your children in the ways of the Lord. Um... Man, and and they say opposites attract, but man, when you've been together a while, sometimes opposites just annoy, don't they? Yep, we've been there. And listen, we can chuckle about that today, but we also can laugh about that because we know it runs way deeper than just the color of the couch, right? That man, when you're together with one person for that long, it's inevitable, it won't be long before you're gonna see each other's flaws, you're gonna see the deficiencies in each other's character, and sooner rather than later, you will hurt one another deeply. Marriage is not a fairy tale, which is why every relationship eventually comes to the point 
where you need the promise. You need the promise. Weddings are amazing things, aren't they? But I also think weddings are a little bit terrifying because what a wedding is, is it's a man and a woman standing up before a group of witnesses and the almighty God himself and making a promise, making a vow. And that's the bedrock. That's what marriage is built on. That for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, when we're young and sleek and Marvin Gaye's playing in the background and you got the scent of Chanel number five in the air, right? And when you're old and gray and talk radio's on in the background, you're just smelling each other's denture cream, okay? For better, for worse, baby. <laughs> and on those days when it's clicking and the birds are singing and your relationship is firing on all cylinders and on those days when it feels like no matter what you do, we just cannot get on the same page. For better, for worse for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, it's a lifetime promise till death do us part. Y'all know that's crazy, right? That's a big deal. The author, Lou Smeads, he says it like this. He says, when a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable, that she will be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. He says, when a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing, that he will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. He says, a promise creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. This is an incredible thing that we're doing. And there comes a point in every marriage where you need that promise. And we're living in a world right now where promises are pretty cheap. And where a whole lot of couples who stand up and say, I do, eventually end up saying, I don't. And so if we're going to be people who show the world the kind of compelling beauty of a promise-based relationship, then what I want to do with you today is I just want to rewind, if that's okay. This is not going to be a kind of marriage sermon where we give a whole bunch of tips and tricks on how to communicate. What I'd like to do with you today is I'd just like to revel in the beauty of our promise-keeping God. Would that be okay? And that means that whether you're married or not this morning, this is still for you because the fundamental promise-based relationship that every one of us has is not with another person, but with the God who made us and the God who loves us. The Bible word for a promise-based relationship is the word covenant. Say that with me. Say covenant. Covenant, very, very good. Um, there's a story actually told in ancient Greek mythology that kind of illustrates the concept of a covenant. I don't know if you had to read this in school or not, but you might remember the story of the Greek hero Odysseus. And Odysseus is on this great adventure, and one time he has to sail his boat past the island of the sirens. Now, not talking like police sirens, but these sirens were these mystical female creatures who would sing this song to try to seduce the travelers who were sailing by their island. And no Nobody could resist the song of the silence. It was so beautiful that if you heard it, it would inevitably lure you in, promising beauty and satisfaction and fulfillment, and yet it ultimately only led to death. Countless sailors had met their death on the rocks by the island of the sirens because they'd listened to the song and followed the song. And so when Odysseus has to sail his ship past the island of the sirens, he decides to plug the ears of his sailors with beeswax so they won't hear the song, so they won't be seduced. But Odysseus himself has heard so much about how beautiful this song is that he wants to hear it for himself. 
And so what he does is he has his sailors tie him to the mast of the ship. They bind him to the mast. And he tells them, he says, as we're sailing by, when I hear the music, do not listen to anything I tell you. Do not obey a single one of my orders until we're long past. And so they do that. They tie him to the mast. And as they're sailing past, he hears the music and he goes crazy. But because his soldiers have their ears stuffed, they sail on to safety. And that's a little bit like what a covenant is. A covenant means that you're going to tie yourself here. You're going to bind yourself to the mass so that no matter what, no matter how enticing anything else says, you're not going anywhere. In fact, the Hebrew word for covenant is the word berit. Can you say that with me? Say berit. And it literally means to bind. You're saying, hey, I am tying myself here. I'm going to bind myself to the mast with this covenant. And throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, we see all of these covenants. And the amazing thing about the covenants that we see is that in these covenants, God chooses to bind himself to us and bind us to him. It's pretty amazing. And actually, the fundamental promise that's related to the covenant throughout the whole Old Testament, it shows up in Jeremiah chapter 30. God says, you will be my people, and I will be your God. Over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, this is the thread pulled through the whole thing. God's promise that you will be my people, and I will be your God. I'm going to bind myself to you. This is amazing that God in his infinite grace has chosen to identify himself not just as a God, but as our God. He's not just any old God. He's our God, which means that we're not just any old people. We're his people. And this is the story all throughout. It starts way back in the beginning, this covenant does. In Genesis, when God creates the world, he makes the first man, Adam and Eve, and he puts him in the garden, and he says, here, work the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy me. Enjoy my creation. You will be my people, and I will be your God. But Adam and Eve break the covenant. The whole world descends into wickedness. And so God floods the world. In Genesis chapter 8, he decides to start over with a man named Noah. And God says, okay, Noah, let's try this again. He says, Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And then he gives Noah a rainbow in the sky as the sign of the covenant, the sign of this promise that he's never going to flood the world again, that you will be my people and I will be your God. Astronauts who've flown in space tell us that when you get to space, you can actually see the rainbow as a whole circle around the world. You and I right now are literally surrounded by the covenant faithfulness of God, that we will be his people and he will be our God. God keeps pushing that promise further. In Genesis chapter 12, God shows up to this elderly man named Abram, and Abram doesn't have any kids, but God says to him, you are gonna be the father of a great multitude, and I'm gonna use your family to bless the whole world. And as proof of this promise, God says, Abram, look up at the stars. Your descendants are going to be even more than that. He says, Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. He also says, Abraham, I want you and all your descendants to be circumcised as the sign of this covenant I'm making with you. And if I'm Abraham in that moment, I'm thinking, like, can't I just get a rainbow? I feel like I got the short end of this deal, right, you know? Uh, but there's a beauty in it that now for the rest of his life, every time Abraham hears his name, every time he looks up at the sky, every time he looks down at his body, he's reminded of the promise, you will be my people and I will be your God. 
And God actually has Abraham go through this kind of ancient ceremony to initiate the covenant. This ceremony that all kinds of ancient peoples would do was called cutting a covenant. Say that with me. Say cutting a covenant. Cutting a covenant. Very good. And what you do is when you cut a covenant, you get all these animals. And so God has Abraham get a cow and a goat and a ram and a dove and a pigeon and kill them all and cut all of those animals in half. And then you would lay out the halves of those animals with a path between them. This was a common ancient practice where two parties who were entering into a covenant together would then walk down that path through the halves of those dead animals together. Basically promising that they would walk forever within the boundaries of that promise and that if they failed and they were not true to their word, may they become like those dead animals. Now, when I do premarital counseling with couples, I keep suggesting this as a cool wedding ceremony. I think it's got promise. Can you imagine how much more seriously we take our marriages if the bride walks down the aisle between a bunch of dead goats, you know? Like, okay, maybe not. Um, But this amazing thing happens in that when God is gonna make this covenant with Abraham, Abraham never walks down the middle of the path. It actually gets to be late at night. Abraham falls asleep and only God walks down the middle of the path. It's as if he was saying, I know you're never gonna be able to hold up your end of the bargain, but I can fulfill my end of the promise and your end too. It's amazing. And and God passes down that promise that Abraham does have a son named Isaac and God reiterates the promise to Isaac and then to Isaac's son, Jacob, and then all of Jacob's family, they end up as slaves in Egypt. And God says this in Exodus chapter two, it says, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. He didn't forget his promise, his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And because God remembered his promise, He sends the 10 plagues in Egypt and he rescues them from slavery and he brings them out into the wilderness. And then as they're in the wilderness, having just been rescued from Egypt, God expands the promise. Now it's not just to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now the promise is to all the people that you will all be my people and I will be your God. And he meets the people at Mount Sinai and he gives them the 10 commandments as part of the promise. And here's what he says. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He said, you've seen what I've done to save you. Now, because I've saved you, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. He says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be my people. And I will be your God. As he's giving Moses the Ten Commandments there on top of the mountain, the writer actually kind of intentionally frames Exodus 19 here as an ancient wedding ceremony. God is marrying the people of Israel. And yet right in the middle of the wedding, the bride cheats on the groom. Moses comes back down and the people are worshiping this golden calf. They're worshiping this idol. They've already broken God's covenant before they even got the Ten Commandments. And Amazingly, God doesn't give up on them. This is the pattern throughout all of scripture. God makes the covenant, we break the covenant. God makes the covenant, we break the covenant. And yet God does not give up. He refuses to unbind himself from them even though they have unbound themselves from him. And he calls Moses up on the mountain and he's giving him the 10 commandments all over again. And right after that, right after the people have utterly cheated on him, This is how God describes himself in Exodus chapter 34. This is the most basic description of God's character in the Old Testament. If you would have asked a Jew, who is God? They would say this, that God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate 
and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Isn't this beautiful? And he's a God of, of love, steadfast, abounding in love. And that word for love there in Exodus 34, it's the word chesed in Hebrew. Say that with me, say chesed. You got to get a little phlegm in your throat or you're not doing it right, okay? Chesed, you know, like, yeah, uh, we'll stop. Um, and chesed is not just like touchy-feely honeymoon kind of love. Chesed is covenant love, promise-keeping love, no matter what comes, always and forever, I'm binding myself to you kind of love. And this is the kind of love that God has for us when we are a part of his covenant people. We will be his people, and he will be our God. And all throughout scripture, the people keep failing, but God's chesed never fails. He keeps pushing the promise forward. He says, King David, I know you want to build a house for me, but that's not what I want. I'm actually going to build a house for you, David, and somebody from your family is going to sit on the throne forever and ever. I will be your God and you will be my people. And yet David sins and David's family sins and the people keep on sinning and they keep on breaking the covenant, but God does not give up. And that's the story of the Old Testament. And you might know that our Bible is split up into two major sections. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that word there, testament, it literally just means covenant. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Promise and the New Promise. So think about all these old covenant promises that we've just walked through, all these people that we've just talked about. God says over and over again to each one of them, hey, you will be my people, I will be your God. God started the world through Adam. God restarted the world and preserved the world through Noah. God promised to save the world through Abraham. God formed a people with Israel. And God promised an eternal king through David. And all of those promises... God fulfills in Jesus. We catch a hint of this when we flip the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The very first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, says this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When you read those names, you're supposed to think, ah, this is how God's going to keep the covenant. This is how God's going to fulfill his promise. And he does. Man, think back through the life of Jesus and how he fulfills the promises to each one of those people that we just talked about. Jesus is the perfect Adam who passes the test in the garden and lives a life of obedience even though he was tempted in every way. Jesus is the perfect Noah who restarts humanity and brings us to new life through the water to a new beginning. Jesus is the perfect descendant of Abraham who blesses the whole world. Jesus is the perfect, faithful Israelite who keeps all the law and never forsakes it. Jesus is the perfect, eternal king, the great, great grandson of King David who will reign on the throne forever and ever. Jesus is the only perfect one who has displayed the ultimate chesed, the steadfast covenantal love when Jesus bore upon himself the fate of all those dead animals that God walked through in the promise to Abraham. God upheld both his end of the covenant and ours when his son Jesus died on the cross, fully God, fully man, as Paul says in Romans chapter three, so as to 
to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is a new and better covenant indeed. And it's all fulfilled in Jesus. Every promise. And the signs now of this covenant are what we do together. That baptism is your entry into the covenant family. When you put your faith in God's promises fulfilled in Jesus, you get to be made new in baptism. If you've not been baptized, you need to enter into the covenant so you can say, yes, I am his and he is mine. We're going to have a baptism at the end of this service and we'd love to have more. Come talk to the prayer team at the end of the service. And then we remind ourselves of the covenant every week with what we just did, receiving communion together. Communion is where we remind ourselves how God cut a covenant with us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus was talking about the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26 on the last night of his life, Jesus said, not just this is my blood to forgive your sins. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, that this is how the promise is fulfilled which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So that now we receive that and we remind ourselves how we broke the promise, but God upheld his end of the promise and ours so that we could be his people and he could be our God. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been in this sermon series together called You Are Not Your Own. And over and over again, we've said that the story the world is gonna tell you is that you are your own and you belong to yourself. And we've said, man, that sounds really nice on the surface, but actually it leads to disaster. But there is a better story. There's freedom and beauty in the story of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is king. And 500 years ago in Heidelberg, Germany, some theologians got together and they wrote this thing called the Heidelberg Catechism to teach believers the basics of their faith. And question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The only thing that will comfort you in life and in death. And the answer, they said, is that I'm not my own, but I belong with both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Not you are your own and you belong to yourself, but you are not your own and you belong to God. Of course, they got that right off the pages of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read earlier, Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Every week we've said there's two ways that you belong to God. Number one, you belong to God through creation because he made you. And number two, you belong to God through redemption because he died to redeem you. He purchased you with the blood of his son. So now you belong to him. He is yours. You are his, which means in light of that, we've said, hey, how can we honor God with our bodies? How can we honor God with our time and our money and our parenting? And today we're wrapping up the series talking about how we can honor God with our marriage, with our marriage. And marriage is a good thing. But it's a tricky thing sometimes, isn't it? I heard a story one time of a guy who was, who was praying and uh, God must have found favor with this man. And so, and so God said, hey, listen, um, whatever you ask for, I will give it to you. And so the man's praying and thinks, wow, that's pretty amazing. He says, all right, Lord, um, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii. Um, I'm scared to fly and I don't like boats. So God, could you build a bridge to Hawaii so I could drive there? And the Lord says, man, well, yeah, but it's going to be pretty expensive. It'll take a long time. All the zoning laws, you got to navigate all the red tape. You know, could you ask me for something a little easier? And so the guy says, oh, okay, Lord. Um, well, I'd like to understand my wife. And uh, God says, okay, you want that bridge two lanes or four lanes? <laughs> <laughs> Marriage is a little tricky sometimes, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, and it runs way deeper than just what color the couch is, doesn't it? that marriage has the potential to be this place of hope and joy and peace and love and laughter 
but it also comes with this great potential for pain and for sorrow and for distance and for harm and darkness and confusion. And listen, we're not naive. We know some of you came in here today and you're just dragging and your marriage is hanging on by a thread. So in that moment, when that hits you, and when y'all just can't get on the same page or, or, or when your spouse hurts you or when they let you down or they're not who you thought they would be or they fail to satisfy you and you're not content, if the story you believe is that you are your own and you belong to yourself, then you are free to go wherever you want to try to get fulfillment and satisfaction and completion in something or somebody else. But if the story is that you are not your own, that you were bought at a price, that you belong to God, then that means your marriage is meant to be a covenant that reflects God's covenant with us. We just read this in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. You belong to each other. You're tied to the mast. You're bound, chesed, over and over and over. You keep coming back to the promise. Which means the man on those days when your spouse is rude, when they do not deserve to be loved, when they mistreat you, when you go to bed angry, when finances are tight, when the kids go astray, when miscarriages happen, when personalities change, when they're not who you thought they would be, when you're working hard to look like Jesus and they're not doing the same. Chesed says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm yours and you're mine. And that covenant love creates the space for intimacy. One author calls it a small sanctuary of trust within a jungle of vulnerability. And it's within that space that the covenant gives. That's where God has designed sex to be this good and beautiful, fun, life-giving gift to seal the promise. A friend of mine says that he said, listen, I know that most marriages break up because of either sex or money, but our marriage is going to be just fine because we don't have either. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> and that text we read earlier, the really long one, it's a little awkward to read out loud sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, Paul talks a lot about sexuality there because the world does. And the world is going to tell you that sex is a little bit like a post-it note. The yeah, I mean it's it's kind of sticky and it'll it'll like bind you to somebody. There's some there's some power in it that you know kind of makes a relationship closer, but man, you are your own and you belong to yourself. So you can just kind of when you're done, you peel off that post-it note and stick it somewhere else. And you can and then when when, when you're done with that, I mean you can bond with somebody else there and you can pull, peel it off and, and stick it on whoever or whatever you want to do with it. But the world actually is going to tell you this, but God has created a very different vision for sex. The Bible actually talks about sex much more like it's the seal on an envelope. The yeah, there's stickiness to it, but it's meant to be this binding power that seals the covenant, the promise between these two people. And it's within the safety of that promise-based relationship that sex is enjoyed. The Bible talks about how in that moment, the two literally become one flesh between husband and wife. And listen, if you go around talking about this vision for sexuality to the world, they're gonna think you sound absolutely crazy. And it sounded crazy in the ancient world too. There's one theologian who says that in the Roman Empire, people were stingy with their money, but generous with their bodies. And then along came these Christians, these Jesus followers, these people of the promise, and they were generous with their money, 
but stingy with their bodies. Because they know, hey, chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage, God has created sex as this sacred thing to bind and seal the covenant together to become one flesh. Which is why lust and pornography and affairs and divorce, it's so much more painful than just popping off a post-it note. There's some deep wounds in this room. It's because in that moment, it's, it's tearing the covenant and it devastates the relationship and the promise at a deep, deep soul level. That's why for a lot of us in the room, your deepest and most painful scars are in relation to your sexuality. It devastates the promise and it takes a chunk of your heart with it. So here's my desire today. My desire is that in light of this covenant, that as people of the promise, you would walk out of here knowing that you belong to God that your wife is a daughter of God, that your husband is a son of God, and that God has given you to each other so that you can show the world what his promise-keeping love is like. That no matter then like how long your longest-running argument is, your love is gonna run longer still because it's built on a covenant promise. So double down on that promise. Double down on that covenant. Double down on those vows. And yeah, let your sex life be a reflection of the sacrificial, self-giving, promise-keeping love of God to seal that promise. But the elephant in the room right now, for everybody in the room, is that we haven't always kept the promise, have we? There's a whole lot of scars in this room right now. In fact, I'd wager there's not an unscarred heart in the room. Things that have been done, things that have been done to you, words that have been said. In this room, there's a lot of promises that have not been kept. Because every one of us, we've listened to the song of the siren. We unbound ourselves and it only led to death, didn't it? Scripture says there's no one righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is death. We've been there. I love the later in that story in Greek mythology, after Odysseus sails by the island and he plugs the ears of his sailors, there's another guy who comes along and he's sailing his ship and he tried a different strategy. His name was Orpheus. And instead of just blocking the ears of his sailors, as they sailed past the island, Orpheus pulled out his instrument. And he played a song that was louder than the song of the sirens, a song more deep and rich and beautiful and sweet. And as that sweeter song filled the hearts of the sailors, they sailed on in peace. So Christian, here's my challenge for you. Listen to the sweeter song today. And here it is. God did not save you because you were strong so he will not give up on you when you are weak and God did not save you because you are righteous so he will not abandon you when you sin and God did not save you because you had it all figured out and so he won't ditch you when you have some doubt and questions and God did not save you because he needed you and so his covenant promise will not fail you when you let him down. His Hesed covenant promise-keeping love will not unbind itself from you 
Some of you need to stop making promises to God and you need to start believing his promises to you. Because the good news is that even though every single one of us have torn the envelope up, man, if you become a follower of Jesus and you throw yourself on his mercy, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, here's the sweeter song. Paul says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were. Every one of us have wandered. He said, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified and made right through Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And even though we have torn up the promise and we have walked away time and time and time again, God can make us new. Paul says through his Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4 that you were sealed again for the day of redemption. So today, I want you to rest in the love of God. That for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, even death cannot part. But your only comfort in life and in death is that you are not your own, but you belong to God. We are his people and he is our God forever. Let's pray. Man, God, we need you. You know how fickle and weak we are, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. So God, um, for the marriages in this room, would you bind us together to one another? Would you bind us to you? My prayer is that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be so filled with your love that then we get to show the world a picture of that kind of promise-keeping, covenant, faithful love to show them how good you are, even when we don't deserve it. And for those in the room right now who are feeling guilty for promises that have not been kept, there's shame and there's secrets and there's darkness and there's regret. Father, would you just overwhelm all of that? Would your liquid love just flow into our hearts and fill up all the little cracks? We thank you that even though we have failed time and time again, you have upheld both your end of the covenant and ours through the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We rest in his faithfulness and we long for the day of his return only because you are good. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, we're gonna stand and sing here in just a minute and the prayer team is gonna be gathering around the edges of the room like they always do with their green lanyards on. And man, if there's something you need to drag into the light, please... Don't let the moment pass. Like let today be the day of salvation and freedom and hope. And if you need to know with confidence today that I belong to God and he belongs to me, that I can rest in his love. If you need to surrender before the feet of King Jesus today for the very first time, we're ready, we're waiting. You can talk to the prayer team now. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. 
If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.